Hi, I'm Joe Jakevich, and welcome to the Story Lanes podcast, the podcast where every episode we do a deep dive into a movie or TV show. And to go along with this analysis, I publish a chart of the story we're covering on the Storylanes.com website, a chart I produced while preparing the episode. You don't need to look at that chart, the podcast is standalone, but if you're interested in diving a little deeper, check it out at Storylanes.com. This week, we're doing 2009's Jennifer's Body, a horror movie written by Diablo Cody, directed by Karen Kusama, and starring Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. In a little to my surprise, because it's not why I picked it to do, this is a movie that seems to be getting a lot of buzz right now, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, my usual warning. This podcast assumes you've seen the movie. There will be spoilers, and there won't be detailed explanations of plot points. So if you listen to this without knowing the movie, you're out of luck. The movie will be spoiled for you, and you may not understand what I'm talking about. It's basically the worst of all worlds. So see the movie. It's an interesting one in some interesting ways. Jennifer's body is the story of Anita Lesnecki, nicknamed Needy by almost everyone, and her best friend Jennifer Check. The two have been best friends forever, or as the script notes, Sisters practically. People found it hard to believe that a babe like Jennifer would associate with a dork like me. Sandbox love never dies. After a local bar burns down during a performance by an indie rock band, Jennifer starts to eat her fellow high school boys. Now this is strange behavior, so Needy looks into it and she figures out that Jennifer has been possessed by a demon after the band sacrificed her to Satan to make themselves successful. Hijinks ensue, Jennifer kills Needy's boyfriend, Needy kills Jennifer, and Needy ends up in a hospital for the insane. She uses demonic powers stolen away from Jennifer to escape from the hospital, and in a series of pictures shown during the credits, she uses those powers to kill the band that sacrificed Jennifer. Pretty straightforward horror with some comic elements largely provided by the clever dialogue written by Diablo Cody. Now a funny thing happened on the way to this episode. I had come across this movie after someone suggested it as a comp for a script that I'm writing. And honestly, I wasn't terribly impressed by this film. But just as I was getting ready to write this up, the New York Times published an article titled What Megan Fox Taught Me About the Power of Subversive Girls, written by Lena Wilson. This article wrote about the strong impact this film had on the author, and following some links in the article led me to discover that this film is being revisited in certain critical circles. And this led me to some second thoughts about the film that I'll discuss here. So this movie clearly has a strong impact on some audiences. In particular, it can have a strong impact on some teenage girls. Now as you might guess from the sound of my voice, I am not a teenage girl. I have never been a teenage girl. I never expect to be a teenage girl. So perhaps it's not too surprising that this film didn't have the same impact on me as it has on teenage girls. But I am not going to deny the power of representation or finding a film that speaks to issues that one faces or has faced. There are certainly movies that I love in part because I identify strongly with the protagonist. Why, just last week I rewatched It's a Wonderful Life, a film that has that effect on me. But ultimately, I'm not qualified to speak to those aspects of Jennifer's body, and so I'm largely going to ignore them here. Sure, I have opinions, 
but my opinions are not really informed by life experience. So I'm largely going to ignore some of the deeper thematic elements of this film in this episode. But I have included links on some articles about it on the Storylanes.com website. So if you want to read more about how the themes of Jennifer's body speak to young women and some of the issues that our culture is currently wrestling with, I recommend you read those linked articles. Or do a Google search on this film's name, which will lead you to many of the articles that I read. Now, where I feel that I am qualified is when I speak about story structure. So that will be the focus of this episode. And frankly, the story structure of Jennifer's body is a bit of a mess. So I'm going to be saying some negative things here about this film. But please bear in mind that I am speaking primarily on the structure of this story, and where I speak of the themes, it will mostly be facing the question of how the structure of the story serves those themes. Nothing of what I say here should indicate that you shouldn't like this movie. Only that I wish the structure had been more clean, so the movie's themes could have come through with more power. Whew, that was a long prologue. Perhaps appropriate, because this movie also has a long prologue. But in any event, let's get on with our usual analysis. And as usual, we will start with characters. Our protagonist and point-of-view character is Needy Lesnecki. We first meet her in a mental hospital. She's both violent and powerful. We soon see her kick one of the staff across the room. Not surprising, because as she tells us, I'm a kicker. K-I-C-K-E-R. It even says so on my chart. So, Needy is violent and considered insane. But she wasn't always like this. Once upon a time, she was normal. Just two months ago, me, Jennifer, and my boyfriend Chip were completely normal people. We were our yearbook pictures. Nothing more, nothing less. And Needy at that point is normal. A normal high school student, a bit on the geeky side, but not too much. Smart, well-behaved, with a nice boyfriend, Chip. And a best friend, Jennifer. And that leads us to Jennifer. At the starting point, she is also a normal high school girl. But she's nowhere near as nice as Needy. She's selfish and nasty. And she's also quite sexy. So, a bad girl cheerleader type. And Jennifer is kind of the main character of this film. It really is Jennifer's story, though told from Needy's point of view, and though Needy, in dealing with what happens with Jennifer, is the protagonist of the film. So this is one of those cases where the main character is different than the protagonist or the point of view character. Kind of like in Back to the Future, so you can see that episode to learn more about my opinions on the distinctions between these important characters in a film. Now, the friendship between Needy and Jennifer is the key relationship in this movie. They are best friends since forever, but they are also total opposites. It's not entirely clear why they are so close. They just are and always have been. Even though, as we find out, Jennifer has always been pretty nasty to Needy, and has always forced Needy to play second fiddle to Jennifer. So those are our two main characters, and that brings us to the supporting characters, who are all really types. None of them impresses as having a deep emotional life separate from the film. There is Chip Dove, Needy's boyfriend. A bad drummer, but a nice enough kid but a standard teenage boy with all the limitations that implies. 
He loves Needy, but he's inexperienced with girls. And he kind of clings to her a little bit. There's the families of these teens, none of whom really register. Needy, Chip, and Jennifer all have moms. Chip has a little sister. No one seems to have a dad in this film, and none of these family members really make an impact. There's Mr. Robluski, a teacher. Again, there's nothing that much distinguishes him other than the fact that he's got an artificial arm. He is almost cloyingly sincere. There's Jonas the Jock and Colin the Goth, both pretty much refugees from central casting, and both here really to give Jennifer something to chomp on. And then there's Nikolai and the other guys in Low Shoulder, an indie rock band. Nikolai is clearly evil, two-dimensionally so. Dirk, another guy in the band, is nicer, shows some sympathy and regret for what the band does to Jennifer. But when push comes to shove, he says, I don't know if we should go through with this. Dirk, do you want to work at Moose Hoof Coffee forever? I don't, okay? Do you want to be a big loser or... Do you want to be rich and awesome like that guy from Maroon 5? Maroon 5. I guess what I'm saying is that other than Jennifer and Needy, none of these characters have any real depth. And even Jennifer and Needy don't have much. This is not a movie with a rich set of supporting characters of immense depth. They are all largely superficial. This is more about plot. So let's take a look at that plot, and let's do story structure. Now note that in the Storylanes analysis at Storylanes.com, I've brought back the debtor's lane. We dropped it for a while as we've dealt with low body count films. But Jennifer's body is certainly not low body count, and it calls out for a debtor's lane. Now I find Jennifer's body to be a bit of a mess structurally. Though admittedly, the movie isn't quite as much of a mess as the script, because the movie has made one structural improvement that we'll get to soon. But what is the structure of this? Well, to start, there's a rapping story. We start with Needy in a mental hospital. And she's nasty, and she's violent, and she's completely checked out except when she's attacking somebody. Which immediately raises the question, what happened to make this girl be this way? And that launches us into the film. So let's call this a prologue the prologue that introduces Needy in the hospital, and then we jump back in time into Act 1. Now here is a place where the film drastically improves on the script. Because in the script, when we jump back in time, we jump back to the scene where Needy kills Jennifer. Which, in a lot of ways, is the climax of the film, right? We see that scene, the murder of Jennifer, and then we jump back from there to even before then, to back before anything went wrong, when Needy, Jennifer, and Chip were just normal high school students. We were our yearbook pictures. But the film skips this interim jump back. It skips the scene of Needy killing Jennifer and saves it for later when it happens chronologically. So the film jumps straight from Needy in the hospital to Needy, Jennifer, and Chip all still in high school. And I think that is absolutely the right choice. I'm okay with an in-media res opening, though I know some people aren't. But two of them? That does seem excessive. Because the point of an in-media res opening is that it puts a question in an audience's mind. 
How did the character get here? What led to this moment? But if you have two in media res openings, you've put too many questions in the audience's mind, and the audience can quickly forget one of the questions. So better to have just one of the in media res openings, only one question for the audience, as this film does. This was definitely an improvement over the script. Now note, I'm ignoring a brief moment in the film, which actually starts when we see a stringed-out Jennifer waiting for Needy coming to call, right before Needy is going to kill Jennifer. That scene is there, but it's really short, and frankly, forgettable. I think the movie would have done better by dropping it entirely, but it certainly doesn't have anywhere near the harm of putting the death of Jennifer this early in the film. Anyway, now we're into Act 1, the setup. And it's a typical act one. Meet the characters, set up the basic problem, give the inciting incident, set the ball rolling. In this case, the status quo is Needy and Jennifer, best friends, an almost romantic relationship that's called by one character. We're totally lesbian. What? She's my best friend. Now, I can't help but think that first character is on to something here. These girls are awfully close. Maybe a little too close to be just friends. The inciting incident is Jennifer inviting Needy to come see the band Low Shoulder perform at a local bar. That show kicks off the action. And then that show is also in Act 1, and it's a major sequence in the act. The bar burns down, Jennifer and Needy escape, but Jennifer goes off in a van with Low Shoulder. Clearly something is terribly wrong with that band, and with Jennifer going away that way. And then we have one last sequence. Jennifer comes to Needy's house, behaves incredibly strangely, vomits up horrible black bile, and looks like she's going to attack Needy, but instead leaves. And the act ends, and we're into act two. Now, I don't think of this as a film that breaks cleanly into three acts. There's a clear first act, the introduction, and there's a clear final act of climax and resolution. There's a prologue and epilogue with a wrapping story around those two. But between those two acts, there are what I think of as three middle acts. Though a three-act structure purist would probably say they are all part of Act 2. Let's go through the events and why I think they make up full acts. The first of these starts with the next day at school. All of the kids in school are understandably shocked by what happened at the club, a disaster that claimed the lives of many students and others in the community. Everyone's shocked but Jennifer. She's looking good and feeling fine, and making fun of all the grief around her. People die, Jennifer. It's like all over the news. National news. Anybody that we know? We know everyone. Sucks to be them, I guess. Now Needy tells Chip about Jennifer's weird late-night visit, but he downplays her concern, suggests that Needy is imagining things. But she probably just inhaled a whole bunch of smoke or something. No, Chip, no, it was like, it was like evil. Yeah, I think you might want to talk to the school shrink. I'm not saying that to be a dill hole. Chip, I don't tell whoppers and I'm not crazy. I didn't say you were crazy. It's just everybody's a little messed up about this, and it's okay to feel... Discombobulated? Yeah, fucked up. Hey, Nene. And then Jennifer seduces the jock, Jonas, into the woods and promptly turns into a demon and eats him. The police find his body while Jennifer goes swimming. Now, I think that all constitutes an entire act. 
It feels fairly complete, and the scene of Jennifer swimming in a lake feels like a good act finale. So I'm marking this as an act. A three-act purist might call it only part of the act, but it really does feel important and complete to me. So, separate act it is. And now we're into Act 3. We now know that Jennifer is a monster, but nobody else knows it yet. Needy knows something strange is going on with Jennifer, but not how strange. And in Act 3, the town reacts to the tragedy of both the bar and of the death of Jonas. A month passes. The town starts getting back to normal, but Jennifer starts looking tired and ragged. So she sets up a date with Colin the Goth, and she eats him. Now while Jennifer is chomping down on Colin, Needy and Chip have sex for what appears to be their first time. But this is interrupted when Needy senses something strange going on with Jennifer. You see, Needy's got a strange psychic bond with Jennifer. We've seen it in play a couple times before. She leaves Chip's house, encounters post-murder Jennifer, flees the scene, and gets back to her house. That sex scene is actually pretty interesting. Needy is clearly willing to have sex at the beginning of the scene, but as she starts getting the psychic vibes of what Jennifer is doing, she gets very upset. But Chip, oblivious as he is, remember this is a teenage boy we're talking about, thinks that Needy's moans of distress are moans of sexual pleasure. Chip actually thinks he's doing really well. This kind of obliviousness to Needy's feelings, it's, it's thematically important here. In any event, we have another act, we have another dead high school boy. Now note, this act is awfully repetitive. The big beats here aren't that different from the big beats in the previous act. Everyone is upset about a tragedy. Low shoulder is starting to get big. Needy and Chip have a moment, but Chip is oblivious to what's really going on with Needy. Jennifer eats a high school boy. With a little tweaking, you could drop this act entirely and not lose much. I don't think it's really needed. It heightens the tension a little, but it doesn't do much for the plot. Now, a lot of screenwriting gurus argue that anything that can be dropped should be dropped. I wouldn't go that far. But I do think this act is spinning its wheels. I think the script would be improved if there were something different in this act instead of it just being a somewhat heightened version of Act 2. In any event, on to Act 4, which is different than Act 2 and 3. Jennifer comes to see Needy and ends up telling Needy all that happened on the night she went off in the van with low shoulder. It's told largely in flashbacks and it leads up to Jennifer's murder. Now this is a major interlude in the movie. After things have been happening pretty continuously in the main timeline, here we break away for a significant flashback. This is different in both substance and style from what we've been watching so far, and therefore I think it counts as a separate act. But it comes to an end, and we're now into Act 5, the big climax. Needy has done a little extra research. She knows Jennifer is a demon. Jennifer is starting to get hungry again, and things get complicated between Chip and Needy as Needy tries to put their relationship on hold while she goes to deal with the Jennifer issue. And looming over it all, there's a big dance at the high school. So in this act, there's a dance, Jennifer attacks Chip, Needy comes to Chip's defense, but Chip still ends up dead. Then Needy kills Jennifer, this time for good. 
It's a pretty typical big climax act, with lots of killing and the final confrontation between protagonist and antagonist. And then we have an epilogue, which returns us to our wrapping story. Needy is back in the mental hospital, but we discover that she inherited some powers from Demon Jennifer. Needy uses these powers to escape from the hospital, then hits the road to hunt down Low Shoulder. We see the grisly aftermath of her visit in a series of short clips and photos during the credits. Needy finds and kills Low Shoulder, and the film is over. So, the way I read this structure, we have a prologue that's part of a wrapping story, five acts, and an epilogue that finishes up the wrapping story. And, something we haven't seen yet, a credit scene that advances the plot in a significant way, that is, in fact, the primary catharsis of this film. So those five acts are set up, Jennifer's first kill, Jennifer's second kill, the story of Jennifer's sacrifice and why she became a demon, and the final climactic confrontation. Now note that we can measure these acts by the deaths that occur in them. Act 1 includes the deaths in the bar fire. Act 2 includes Jennifer's murder of Jonas. Act 3 includes Jennifer's murder of Colin. Act 4 has Jennifer's death at the hands of Low Shoulder. And in Act 5, Jennifer murders Chip, then Needy kills Jennifer. This is a movie with a murders are story milestones. It's not one of those films that saves up a bunch of deaths for a big climax. And, in fact, there is no large collection of deaths at the end. Chip and Jennifer both die, but nobody else does in that act. Now, one of my little biases, I like my action to grow to a climax, and I like my body count to grow as well. I particularly like films like Get Out, where the final act includes all the killing and one big explosion of violence. Now, I don't require that in my movies, but it is my preference. But it's not what happens here, and I think that's part of the overall sloppiness of the structure of this film. So looking at our other story structure models, we've covered how three-act structure would regard this film. But do note one thing, there is no clear midpoint here. No single scene that shocks us and flips the film around. There are two candidate midpoints, Jennifer's murders of Jonas and Colin, but neither is quite at the midpoint of the film. Jonas's death is a little early, Colin's a little late. And again, note how similar these two beats act in the story structure. Note again the redundancy here that makes things a little messy. Now, if we drop the act with the murder of Colin, we'd have the same structure as many of the other films we've looked at, a clean four acts with a solid midpoint, where a three-act structure purist would be happy. But they didn't do that, and so we have something a little more messy with no true midpoint. Now, this is more support for my argument that a third act is redundant and could easily be removed, not just to satisfy the purists and not just to clean up the structure, but because it really is redundant. Now, in terms of Save the Cat and Hero's Journey, this is one of those cases where there are several beats from both in the film, but some are missing. And when they are present, it feels like a coincidence. Now, I'm not going to go into details, but you can see them in the story lane's analysis if you want more. So, I've talked about some of the structural flaws I see in this movie, and in addition to what I've already noted, I see three major problems. First, the opening of the movie sets up the question of how did a normal high school girl end up in a mental hospital assaulting the staff? But the movie doesn't really answer that question. Needy goes through some rough stuff, and we learn why she was arrested. It's for the murder of Jennifer. 
but why does she violently act out? She really doesn't seem like the same person at all. What turned her that way? Now there's the suggestion of an answer when we find out that she gained powers from being bitten by demon Jennifer. Maybe it affected her behavior also. But this is only a suggestion. And one could guess that the trauma that she went through made her this way. But that's not clear either. So the movie doesn't really pay off the question given in the setup. Second, the catharsis that I, as an audience member, craved was to see Jennifer get demonic revenge on Lowe's shoulder for what they did to her. And there's a great setup for this. When Lowe's shoulder shows up to play at the school dance, I thought, terrific, we're going to end in a good old school dance bloodbath. Jennifer's going to go all carry on their asses. I was looking forward to it. But that's not where the film went. Low Shoulder starts playing, then Needy leaves the dance, and we never get back to the dance again. There was absolutely no story reason to have Low Shoulder show up at the dance at all. Jennifer never does get back at them. Jennifer never even gets in the dance. We don't see horrible retribution leveled on Low Shoulder as we so much want. Now, at the end of the film, Needy is going hunting for them, and in the credits we see that she gets them. But this is a strange choice. I can't think of another movie where the primary catharsis of the film was relegated to some stills played during the credits. Now, a note that Mrs. Storylanes gave when I told her of my objection. She said that there were good thematic reasons to let Low Shoulder get away. It spoke to how the powerful prey on young women and get away with it. I can see that. There are good thematic reasons for that. It sacrifices the desired catharsis for thematic resonance, but you can make an argument to do it that way. I've been known to do it that way myself in my screenplays. But if that is really what the movie is trying to say, why end it with Needy going hunting for low shoulder? Why add that credit sequence? It strips away the thematic resonance without delivering the strong catharsis that we want. All in all, I found this disappointing. Now, my third major structural flaw. It felt like a key part of Needy's character journey is learning to be independent of Jennifer. And a key climax of this arc is the moment when she finally says, You're a jerk. Wow, nice insult, Hannah Montana. You got any more harsh digs? You know what? You are never a good friend. Even when we were little, you used to steal my toys and pour lemonade on my bed. And now I'm eating your boyfriend. See? At least I'm consistent. But this happens too early in the film. For this to have maximum power, Needy should make this declaration when she's about to kill Jennifer. Instead, in the killing scene, Diablo Cody decides to get clever and have Needy say, You know what this is for? It's for cutting boxes. Do you buy all your murder weapons at Home Depot? God, you're much. Cross out, Jennifer. It's clever, but it really doesn't have a tie to their long friendship. There's no resonance there. So I think that Needy should realize that Jennifer has never been her friend in the same scene where she kills Jennifer. That would be more dramatically apt and more satisfying. And why not? I'm on a roll. Let's have one bonus issue with the film. 
Jennifer doesn't really seem to change much when she becomes possessed by a demon. She's nasty after becoming a demon, but she was always nasty. Now she just starts eating boys instead of bad-mouthing them as she does here before she even becomes a demon. Hey Jennifer, you look really pretty. What up, Craig? <laughs> he thinks he's cute enough for me, and that's why he's in retard math. And bear in mind that the boy in question is in earshot when she says that. So those are my issues with the film. Is there something I like here? Well, yes. First off, there's the quality of the dialogue. Listen to this scene where Jennifer, Needy, and Chip are all present. Guess who's got the whip until 1130? A 2003 Chrysler Sebring, and it's all mine. <laughs> oh, hi, Chip. It smells like Thai food in here. Have you guys been fucking? <laughs> There's so much great stuff going on in that scene, stuff that establishes these characters and their relationships. Jennifer, all happy about having the keys to a Chrysler Sebring, thus establishing that she is much more small town than she likes to admit. Chip, who is definitely jealous of Jennifer's relationship with Needy, he tries to deny that jealousy, but he doesn't get away with it. Needy, who is hardly in the scene at all except for a little wrestling with Jennifer that ends with her slammed against a wall. She is subordinated to both Chip and Jennifer. They fight over her. She is going to have to step up and assert herself before the film is over. And she does, a key part of her character arc. In this dialogue, it's lots of fun, with clever made-up slang. Note that this script doesn't just use terms we've heard over and over. It's fresh, but it still feels authentic. It's good stuff. A second thing to like, there is some real thematic resonance here. Read those articles that I linked to. Once again, we see that horror is a place where screenwriter can go heavy on metaphor and theme. In this case, Jennifer suffers terrible harm at the tans of entitled young men. And this turns her into a monster who in turn preys on young men. It's powerful stuff, and there's some serious resonance to this. I can easily see why this film is now regarded as carrying the themes of the Me Too movement. So, lessons learned from this film. First, there's that thematic resonance that I just mentioned. Any film is elevated by having this kind of resonance at its heart. This one is no exception. Screenwriters, figure out what your story means and craft the plot around that. Second, a lesson we've seen before. Good dialogue elevates any story. Diablo Cody has a great ear for the language of teenagers. That's on display here. It's good stuff and makes the movie better. Spend those extra hours crafting your sentences. It's worth it. And third, one that, alas, I think this film shows in the negative. Structure matters. I believe this film could have packed a more powerful punch if it had corrected the various structural flaws I mentioned. Figure out what it wants to say about the powerful who prey on women. Give us the catharsis of seeing them brought down violently. Or, if you want the thematic resonance of leaving them at a high point, do that. Don't do this sort of half-hearted, kill-them-off-in-the-credits thing. 
that seems to be trying to play it both ways, and it doesn't really work. Now, the catharsis approach is clearly more satisfying, and I don't think it's cheap to pick catharsis over being strictly true to theme, and I don't think it makes any sacrifices to the theme. Take, for example, Get Out. We see the catharsis of seeing these horrible people who viciously use young blacks, and they get taken down, even though the movie wouldn't ever say that racism itself is defeated. The battle is won, but the war continues. I think Jennifer's body would benefit from that approach. So that's Jennifer's body. I found it interesting, and I hope you did too. Now, a little announcement. Life has gotten a lot more busy lately, and I'm afraid I won't have time to do more episodes of this podcast. It does take quite a while to put one of these together. I may get back to it someday, or I may not. I hope I will, but even if not, I hope you have found some value from our time together. I know I have. Until then, check us out at storylanes.com, where you'll find the script of this episode, a link to the Jennifer's Body screenplay, the Storylanes chart for this movie, and links to some recent articles that revisit this film. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on whatever podcast service you heard it on. That will help others discover us. This is Joe Jakevich and the Story Lanes Podcast. Talk at you later. Hey.